Father, once again, we thank you for your word. And as we come to it again this morning, we ask you to work it into our lives. For our good and for the glory of your name. Amen. So I've been thinking a lot about blindness lately. Reading through John chapter 9 has me wondering about this account of Jesus, or this account of Jesus healing the man who was born blind, and I've just tried to wrap my mind around what it must have been like for this man. I don't have much experience with blindness. Growing up, I remember hearing about Helen Keller, though I didn't really know her story. Then there was Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder, whose music I appreciated and whose musical genius I came, or her music I enjoyed and whose musical genius I came to appreciate. I remember there was Mary Ingalls from Little House on the Prairie. She and her husband Adam were blind. I think, I think, our dog Annie, after many, many years, our short-haired, long-bodied, miniature dachshund, I think she eventually went blind, but even that memory is somewhat vague. And then there's my sister, who suffers from MS, and she, I don't fully understand this, but apparently she has bouts of blindness. And the doctors say that she will probably go blind. But other than these few examples, I don't have much experience with blindness. So I tried something different this week. I googled the question, what's it like to be blind? I wanted to hear from people who deal with blindness firsthand, and here's a bit of what I gleaned, just a small portion. The blind are an obvious minority, meaning that you never quite fit in. There's a continual sense of being out of place in the world around you, in that the world around you typically doesn't have a place for you. A constant reminder that your inability to see puts you on the outs. You're just different. And not always in a good way. And then people are often awkward around you. They're just not sure how to behave toward you. And their awkwardness often causes them to withdraw which leaves you feeling isolated and lonely. 
And even well-intentioned people often assume you can't do much as a blind person, not even simple tasks. The sighted tend to assume that the blind always need their help. Sometimes to the dismissal of their other abilities. In fact, one blind woman said that excessive kindness is almost as insulting as awkward withdrawal. And then there's the constant pressure. This surprised me, but I I think I understand. There is the constant pressure not to fall or fail. Wherever you go, people watch and they wait and they just hope you don't fall. And it can be dispiriting to think that you don't even have the freedom to stumble or trip or simply misstep. And of course, sometimes you're the butt of thoughtless joking. After all, how many of us haven't heard a Helen Keller joke or two? And then one teenager commented that her blindness simply and sadly meant she'd never be able to drive. A privilege that means so much to her that so many take for granted. And I could share more. After all, Google yielded, I kid you not, over 141 million responses. But I share these because I suspect the blind man of chapter 9 experienced some of these same things, these same feelings, but undoubtedly to a far worse degree. If people today aren't sure how to react to the blind, certainly people then were far less sure. I suspect that loneliness, isolation, awkwardness, withdrawal, and outright dismissal were commonplace for this man. And given the disciples' question in verse 3, who sinned, right, that question, most people probably thought this man deserved his blindness, and therefore didn't deserve their help. Certainly, this left him in a constant state of despair, one that likely became so routine that he likely accepted it, just accepted it as his sad lot in life. He was a blind beggar, and to those around him, probably even to himself, he would just always and only be a blind beggar. So could it be that when Jesus restored his sight, he also restored his dignity, his personhood? Everything changed for this man. Not just his ability to see. He experienced life as never before. Uh, The glory, the grace of God as never before. And the healing of this man is a sign, we're told. It was a sign for him and for those around him. And a sign for us. A sign to show that Jesus, or just as Jesus gave sight to this blind man, so does he give sight to the spiritually blind, just as he restored this man's personhood, so does he restore a person's relationship with God. 
And yet, here we also learn that not everyone wants to see. There are some who think they see, but are totally blind. And they're not open to another possibility. What becomes apparent in our text this morning is this juxtaposition between fear and faith. Some are so afraid of the change that Jesus makes, even a change for the better, so afraid of what Jesus or of what following Jesus might mean for them that they outright refuse the obvious. But this blind man actually met Jesus, was wonderfully changed by Jesus, and finds his faith in Jesus growing moment by moment. So I want to talk, I just want to walk through the text again, somewhat briefly, just to get the feel of what's happening. And then I want to make two observations that, that I think are woven throughout the text that per, pertain to, to fear and faith. One observation pertaining to fear and the other that I think pertains to faith. With verse 8, we begin seeing people react to the healing of this man. When he was blind, he was largely ignored, but now he sees, and everybody, it seems, wants a piece of him. But there's confusion, right? And there's, there's reluctance, and some won't accept. Some won't even accept that this is the same man. And though he tries himself to convince them, testifying to Jesus and to what Jesus has done, what Jesus did and said, they remain skeptical. They remain unbelieving. Where is this Jesus, they ask, but Jesus isn't there at the moment, which seems only to add to their skepticism. So they bring him to the Pharisees, these religious authorities. And, th and this word brought here in verse 13 suggests by force. It's not, hey, Let's go see what the Pharisees have to say. It's, hey, you come with me. It's the same word used in the last chapter, chapter 8, when the Pharisees brought to Jesus the woman caught in adultery. It's more like being taken into custody. Meaning that these people seem to treat this miracle, right? This miracle in his life. They seem to treat it more like a crime than a cure. And when they bring the matter to the Pharisees, the Pharisees respond in like manner. But why was he brought at all? I was wondered that. Why was he brought at all? Why not celebrate it with him or at least just leave him alone? And, and I think it's because they feared the Pharisees. In fact, John parenthetically mentions this fear in verse 22. It's also mentioned in chapter 7, verse 13, and later in chapter 12, verse 42. The whole vibe here is that the Pharisees had put fear into the hearts of the people concerning Jesus and his ministry. 
And they begin to question this man. They want to know how this happened, and they're obviously bothered that it happened on the Sabbath. This continues to be a stumbling block for them. The Sabbath was a holy day, of course. God intended the Sabbath to be a day of unique, unique blessing. But the Pharisees added so many restrictions to it that it became more burden than blessing. And they're ticked off that Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. How dare you? Some of them immediately write him off, Jesus. They just immediately write Jesus off as a sinner. But others aren't so sure. They say in verse 16, How can a sinner do such signs? And so there's this discussion and division among the Pharisees over Jesus. They can't seem to agree, so they ask the man what he thinks, and he says, I think he's a prophet. Which isn't the answer they want. Because if Jesus is a prophet, it means he is from God, and they're unwilling to accept this fact. So at this point, if we were to just pause here, at this point, one thing we've learned is that it becomes very clear that it's really not answers they seek. It's their answers they seek. They, they don't really want to know what the man thinks. They want the man to think what they think. And when he doesn't, and when he doesn't they dismiss him and, and they begin to question if he really was ever blind at all. So they call his parents in verse 18. But his parents aren't much help either. They seem to say as little as possible. They hesitate to take a side. They seem to dodge the questions. Yes, he is our son, and yes, he was born blind. But how he now sees, I don't know. I don't know who opened his eyes. Why don't you just ask him? He's of age. He can speak for himself. They're, they're afraid. They, too, are afraid. Right? Verse 22, they're afraid of what might happen to them if they side too closely with their boy. It's very, very, very disheartening. And then the situation escalates. Getting nowhere with the parents, the Pharisees again call the man, and the dialogue that ensues in verses uh, 24 through 34 is intense. At least from their side, it's, it's intense to say the least. Listen, you. You give glory to God. We know that Jesus is a sinner. They're basically saying, stop blaspheming God. Right? They're putting the screws to him. How dare you suggest that Jesus, this, this Sabbath-breaking sinner, is a prophet from God, to which the man replies, you say he's a sinner. 
that's your position. I don't know. And then he admits to knowing one thing. In verse 25, I was blind, and now I see, and Jesus did it. Well, how'd he do it? They reply, or they press. And, and he says, I, I told you. You won't listen. Why should I tell you again when you clearly aren't listening? And I love what he asks in verse 27. Do you also want to become his disciples? Now, I think there's something very telling here in that it reveals this man. There's an underlying desire within this man to follow Jesus. We're going to touch on this in a bit, but I just think this is really a beautiful thing that this word also, do you also want to become one of his disciples? I think there's just a sense that this man is now seeing himself as a follower of Christ. And it really upsets them. Because we're told they begin to revile him. That's a strong word. We follow Moses. That is, we follow the law. You might follow this lawbreaker, but not us. Never. We know that Moses is from God, but Jesus certainly not. And then this man's testimony becomes even more pointed. What's happening is what's happened is an amazing thing. Jesus couldn't be the sinner they presumed. Instead, he reasons he must be a man of God who worships God and does God's will because never had something like this been done before. He says as much in verse 32, right, when he says, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. By his reasoning, he's saying, listen, if Jesus wasn't from God, he couldn't have done this. But he did do this. So he must be from God. And I can't help but think in this interaction, I can't help but think that he's pleading with them to truly consider the reality of what's taken place. Listen, Pharisees, put your, your suppositions and, and your opinions aside for a moment and just listen to what I'm saying. I was on the street corner begging every day. Never there was never a day that I saw anything. And then this guy, Jesus, puts mud on my face, tells me to wash, I wash and I see. What's your issue? But they're beyond reasoning. 
I mean, you ever tried to reason with someone who's beyond reasoning? So steeped in their pride, they're beyond convincing. They're so haughty. They're so arrogant. Who are you to teach us? They're incensed. And they just cast dispersion upon this man. You were born, you, you are, you're born in utter sin. And they just cast him out. We're done with you. You're not welcome here anymore. Essentially, they condemned him. They threw him out of the synagogue. And in reviewing and pondering this passage and the people in this passage, it seems, seems there are two basic responses in play here. Two fundamental applications concerning our response. One pertaining to fear and the other to faith. I think the fear of man is very, very present in this chapter. The people are afraid of the Pharisees, seemingly more concerned with the Pharisees' response than with the man who was made to see. So ingrained is their fear, they, came, they care more about not upsetting the religious establishment than celebrating this man's miraculous healing. Even his parents are afraid. We'd expect them to rejoice, but they pull back. They hold back. They're afraid of being put out of the synagogue, afraid of the embarrassment that would bring. And I wonder, I can't help but wonder if they're, if deep down, if they're embarrassed by their son and by his newfound sight. At least when he was blind, they were left alone, but now he's compromising their standing in the community. So they seem more concerned by what man might do to them than with what Jesus has done with their boy. And even the Pharisees are afraid. They feel threatened by Jesus, afraid of the effect Jesus is having on people's lives and what it means for their way of life. So afraid that, that they won't even allow people to confess Jesus as the Christ. Right? They've put the word out. If you call upon this man as the Christ, you're cast out of the synagogue. They won't, they won't even use his name. So throughout this whole scene, they refer to Jesus indirectly. They just call him this man, but never by name. The people, the parents... The Pharisees, they're all in bondage to, fit, to fear, it seems. And fear uh, of this kind is a terrible, terrible tyrant. And I don't want to be like that. Controlled by fear. I want to fear God 
in the reverential sense of the word. I suspect you do too. I want to enjoy life with God. I want to enjoy God always adoring and appreciating who he is, always submitting to his will and work in my life and in the lives of those around me. I want to rest in God's promises and live, live in the reality that God is making all things new, always creating and recreating. I don't want to be overbearing as the Pharisees were. I don't want to be so controlling, so afraid of losing control that I lose joy in God and what God is doing in and around me. I want to be teachable and hopeful and quick to celebrate God's grace. How about you? I don't want to trust in mere externals. For them, it was the Sabbath their view of the Sabbath, their self-reliant religious endeavors. But I want to be humble and honest enough to admit my need for Jesus. If I could clean up my own act, there'd be no need. But as it is, I can't. So Jesus came to cleanse me. To deal with my sin. To bear my sins so that I wouldn't have to. Jesus is grace from God. Who saves and secures me to God. I don't understand all that God is doing in and around me. Neither did they, but I know he is at work. And I want us to be quick to celebrate that work. Which leads to the second observation. And that is that faith is a work in progress. So my first point was that fear is a terrible tyrant. I don't know if I said that. Fear is a terrible tyrant. My second is faith is a work in progress. I'm struck by this man's faith. And I put faith in quotations because he is responding to Christ and to the work of Christ in his life by faith, even though he hasn't yet come to faith. He knows something miraculous has happened. He knows that Jesus made it happen. He even knows that God is behind what happened, but he doesn't know why. He doesn't even know much about Jesus, apparently. When questioned by the Pharisees, he admits to just this one thing. I was blind, but now I see. And so we don't always know what God is doing, but the change he makes is undeniable. For the first time in his life, he can see and Jesus made it happen. And as I said earlier, 
uh, it seems very clear that he intends from that point forward to be a disciple of Christ, though he doesn't even know what that means. So he is exercising some faith. He is exercising a degree of faith in Jesus even before coming to faith in Jesus. I'm talking about coming to saving faith. He doesn't come to saving faith until later when he again meets Jesus and finally sees Jesus for who he truly is. In other words, his faith here is very much a work in progress. And and please hear this, Jesus seemed okay with that. I mean, Jesus disappeared for a while. Jesus seemed okay with letting him have space and room to process what had happened. Jesus seemed okay with letting him draw his own conclusions and wrestle with the the people and the parents and the Pharisees for a little bit. Jesus seemed okay with that. The point is that people sometimes need room to work through the questions of faith before truly coming to faith. Even when Jesus does the miraculous, as he did with this man, they may not always get it at first. At first, this man thought Jesus to be only a prophet, a man from God, yes, but nothing more. Only later did he learn that Jesus was far more than a prophet. He was God's promised Messiah, the Savior sent from heaven. Only later did he learn that Jesus was not only able to heal physical blindness but spiritual blindness too only later were the eyes of his heart opened only later did he come to saving faith and this is so encouraging because surely there are people in our lives who may not yet be saved but who may very well be on the road to saving faith Exactly where on that road, we don't know, but God knows, and we, and we must trust that God is working. Listen, I heard it put this way. It's so true on the continuum of faith. Even a move from negative 10 to negative 9 is a move in a positive direction. And who's to say that that person you've been witnessing to and praying for Maybe a friend at school or a neighbor down the street or a wayward loved one. Who's to say that he or she isn't just one step away from encountering the living Christ and having their blind eyes opened? I mean, consider your faith journey. Could you have predicted it? You too are a work in progress. Both before and after saving faith. 
You know some things, but not everything. You still have questions you're working through. Absolutely, you can testify to God's grace, but you still don't understand its many facets. And yet the change God has made and is making in your life is undeniable. If you took a bird's eye view to see where you were 10, 15, 20 years ago, maybe even just last year or last month, there's no denying that God is graciously working in you. Right? And he isn't finished yet. Your faith is a work in progress. Sometimes we want it all and we want it now, but that's not the way it typically works. That's not the way God seems to work. God seems perfectly content with perfecting his work in us over the course of our entire lives. And I just want to say to some, if there be some in the room today, that if you're not yet a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, the fact that you're here today in church listening to and singing songs and hymns listening to and praying prayers to God, learning from the Word of God, what the Bible teaches, all of this is a testament to God's work. I just want to encourage you by the example of this once blind man to recognize, to just pause and recognize. Don't be like these Pharisees. Pause and recognize what God is doing in your life today, even now, so that you might also place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him from this point forward. I think there are four types of people represented in this passage. Three who respond in fear and one who seems to be responding with a degree of faith. So which are you? Are you more like the neighbors, confused, skeptical, unsure, and unbelieving, even when the obvious is so obvious? Are you more like the parents, concerned primarily about what others may think or do, unwilling to stand for Christ or to stand with those who've been changed by Christ? Are you more like the Pharisees, unteachable? You've got it all figured out. Prideful, argumentative, overbearing, demanding, threatened by Jesus, and unwilling to yield to even the thought of Jesus. Or are you more like this once blind man? Unsure, yes, but still amazed. Unknowing, yes, but still learning. 
drawn to Jesus despite what others think, undeniably changed by Christ, yet still very much a work in progress. Titled the message, From One Blind Beggar to Another, because this man has something to share with us in that we, too, are beggars. We need God. We need God to see us and step into our lives and open our eyes. We need God to grant us faith and God's help in exercising faith each and every day. And so may we be, each one of us, may we be more like this man who received God's grace and responded to it step by step to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for the, wor- for the time and your word. Thank you for the work, your work in our lives. Oh, my goodness. How, who could have predicted this road of faith we've traveled? We thank you for your sovereign grace over the totality of our lives, that day by day and step by step you brought people into our lives and circumstances changed and You used it all in such a way to where you're perfecting your work in each of our hearts. Encourage us today, Father, to know that you are still at work and that you won't give up or give in until it is complete. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.